Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, sometimes it's the paranormal. No matter matter what it is, it's all beyond reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. Glad you're along with us tonight. We have a great show in store for you. We talk about UFOs on this program frequently. Uh, And we talk about the incident at Roswell now and again. And tonight we're going to tie some things together because our guests, Tom Carey and Don Schmidt, have written a book called UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson. And they refer to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base as the real Area 51. So we'll talk about what happened in Roswell. And then we're going to talk about what's happening in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Eyewitness accounts from the real Area 51. That's tonight's conversation. Looking forward to this. We will, of course, take your phone calls later in the program. Write down the phone number. There's two to choose from. If you don't need toll-free, it's 607-282-4497. If you need a toll-free number, most of us don't these days, but if you do, it's 844-687-7669. When you get a chance, go to the Facebook page, Beyond Reality Radio, and give it a like. And also swing by my Facebook page. You can find it by just typing in JVJ Paranormal. Give that page a like, too. And then finally, I'll send you to the YouTube channel, because the YouTube channel offers a very unique opportunity for people to see the program, listen to the program. If you don't have a radio station in your area yet carrying the show, you can go to YouTube and stream it live. It's youtube.com slash C slash JV Johnson, or you just search JV Johnson, you'll find it as well. Um, the, the channel also has about 300 back episodes there, so a great archive of programs if you want to catch up on some old interviews and discussions that we've had on Beyond Reality Radio. Great place to go. Again, just go to YouTube, search for JV Johnson. Uh, there's also a nice chat room there. A lot of people join the chat on the YouTube channel, comment about our topics, uh, share stories, share information, share ideas. It's a great group of people, and it's a great place to be to help enhance your enjoyment of the program. A lot of great stuff coming up on the show, of course, and uh, we'll get to the schedule at, in a, um, a little bit later. I do want to mention, though, uh, we've got some uh, pretty interesting stuff coming up next week that I want to highlight. On Tuesday night, John Zeta, who is a journalist, will be with us to discuss his new new book called In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, which is a search for Sasquatch book, uh, particularly while he was researching the Great Bear Rainforest. And then on Wednesday night, Rick Shapiro, who is a cancer consultant, a researcher and an educator, will be talking about his book called Hope Never Dies. And he relates stories of people who beat the odds and survived cancer. Those are very, very hopeful stories. And uh, hopefully they will not only inspire you, but they'll be an inspiration to somebody who might be battling cancer. I know that um, in my family alone, I, uh, I've, I've been through it many times with different family members. It's, it's a disease that not just affects the person who is suffering from it, but everybody around them and everybody who loves them as well. So... 
Once again, that's Wednesday night's program next week with Rick Shapiro. His book is called Hope Never Dies. So a lot of great things coming up on the show, of course, and we're looking forward to doing all of that. And uh, let's see, I don't really have anything else to say here to get started, so let's take a break, come back. We'll bring in our two guests together, Tom Carey and Don Schmidt. We're going to be talking about the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, how it relates to Roswell, and how it relates to the government's cover-up of... Alien technologies and UFOs, particularly maybe remnants of a crash at the Roswell site. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be right back. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. Joining me, Tom Carey and Don Schmidt, authors of UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson, eyewitness accounts from the real Area 51. Gentlemen, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's great to have you both here. Nice to be well, with you. Good to be back. Thank you. All right. So I I, I want to start this out because um, there's somebody that we really owe a great deal of uh, debt and gratitude to who we lost just a couple of months ago. And I'm, of course, I'm talking about Stanton Friedman who, um, when you start talking about Roswell, you cannot help but, A, mention his name, but, B, stand upon his work. Uh, we, we lost a giant in the industry back in May, didn't we? Yes, of course we did, and, and that he certainly served as an inter- international ambassador, not only for the subject, but, as you mentioned, Roswell itself, and that it was just um, very you know, serendipitous that he happened to be at the right place at the right time and realized that he potentially had a breakthrough case, and, and that was with Roswell when he first uh, ran into the late uh, um, Major Jesse Marcel, who was the intelligence officer at Roswell back in 1947. And then the rest is history, obviously. It, it sure... Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, uh, Stan, Stan was a... Uh... You know, a competitor of ours, because we were both uh, uh, investigating the same case. Uh, we we all agree that the you know that the Roswell case was actually a crash of an extraterrestrial craft, but we we differed on a few of the witnesses. But uh, with so many witnesses that we found, that was to be expected. So we were always collegial. We. Uh, felt him as a uh, to be a comrade in arms, you know, uh, promoting the case, uh, defending the case, and uh, so yes, it was a uh, it was sur- it was a sudden uh, a sudden shock because uh, we had no no indication that there was anything wrong, and uh, yeah. for our latest book. It turned out to be, uh, uh, I, I don't like to use the word fortuitous, but uh, Stan uh, wrote the foreword to our current book that just came out uh, a month or two ago, and we uh, had dedicated the book to him. Yeah, yeah, and that's the one that we're going to be talking about primarily tonight, UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson. Gentlemen, let's take a, a minute for each of you. I kind of want to get a, an idea of how you both became interested in this topic. Tom, I think... You started in high school. You developed an interest in UFOs. Yes. Uh, uh, I was not a big reader, but uh, this was one of the subjects that, that, that I did read about. For some reason, it interested me that, uh, 
you know, my goodness, yeah, you mean we're we're not the only uh, uh, living beings in the universe? Uh, I thought, oh my goodness, who are these? What's going on here? And I became interested in the UFOs as a teenager, and uh, uh, read uh, a number of books. Uh, I'm thinking back now, uh, the uh, uh, Edward Ruppelt book. Uh, uh, the report on unidentified flying objects was a was a terrific book that really uh, piqued my interest. And uh, in 1980, the 19, uh, Roswell incident uh, book came out, and that sort of really uh, got me going uh, to, on this one case because we're talking about a crash, wreckage, bodies, cover up, threats, the whole you name it, and. Uh, it's uh, way more than just lights in the sky, so uh, that's how I, I got interested in it. Yeah, it certainly has all the components uh, for, to make a, a terrific story and certainly to warrant a lot of research. Don, how'd you get your interest? Well, actually, uh, of all places, it started with uh, the Kennedy assassination, and that I was a, a young boy that particular weekend in November of 63, and my father was away and so I was the one who just sat up all night watching, just totally captivated as a, as a little boy for what had just taken place. Yeah. And then thereafter with the, uh, the warrant report and then the, uh, the, the use of the words whitewash and cover-up. And it was just a few years later, I was out Christmas shopping, and I came across a book entitled Flying Saucers, Serious Business by Frank Edwards, New York Times bestseller. And on the jacket, on the cover, it used those very same words, whitewash, cover-up. So, again, I was captivated. I, I, I took the book, and I, I read it, and there was one particular chapter entitled, Who's Driving? And it started to get into the CE3s, the occupant cases, who's driving? And the very next book I bought was The Flying Saucer Occupants by Coro and Jim Lorenzen, who started the area phenomena research organization, so it was a whole book on these uh, occupant cases, and I was hooked. I, uh, high school, I got away with murder and speech class because I was able to lecture <laughs> on a topic without so much as using a note card because I was talking about a subject I was becoming more and more uh, an expert on, so to speak. And yet I was still a skeptic on Roswell. I was uh, a total skeptic on the possibility that they could keep something of that magnitude a, a secret for all that time. But little did we know, and certainly after the first trip to New Mexico in February of 1989, and uh, there's been no turning back ever since. And we're going to talk about some of those details, but I want to ask you a, a, a broader question at this point, because your first uh, eyebrow-raising experience was the Kennedy assassination aftermath. And one of the things that people who are very skeptical about uh, any kind of conspiracy will say is, how can so many people keep a, such a secret for such a long period of time? Do you think it's possible for a group of conspirators to all remain quiet about something f for, you know, half a century? Well, there are two ways of looking at it. Uh, first of all, it hasn't been kept secret all this time. I think that's, uh, that's obviously a misnomer, often perpetrated even within the field itself, because uh, there have been whistleblowers such as Major Marcel and, 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 and general officers like General Arthur Exxon and General Thomas DeBose and, and other high-ranking officials who have been you know, leading the charge as to what's going on for decades now, but nobody's listening. Uh, certainly not the uh, mainstream media. 
I mean, still treating it like just so much entertainment and uh, without a piece of physical evidence, you can't prove it, that type of thing. But I think, I think secondly, it's been demonstrated time and time again that especially with, again, high-ranking officers in the military, they are totally adept at keeping secrets from their families, their spouses. Uh, and I think one of the main uh, problems, especially regarding Roswell, is that most of them have taken it with them. I think that's our greatest frustration, yeah. that we didn't start sooner on the case, but the fact that we've had so many reluctant officers, specifically the officers with pensions and career, you know, professional careers at stake, that they took it to their graves. And it becomes a self-perpetuating cover-up in that regard. And we're, we're hearing from more and more younger people in the military uh, their frustration that the old order is not passing it down to the new. And I think that's one of the reasons that you see now these young Navy pilots and, and other personnel that are speaking out because it's like they've been kept in the dark on, on the topic all these years. When you, when you really do your homework and do the research into the history of the phenomenon, you realize the evidence has been there all this time. Tom, do you think that uh, the highest levels of the, what I will call the apparent government, are aware of these secrets? Like, does the President of the United States have access to this, is it this information, or is it in a, in a shadow government somewhere? Well, it, uh, the impression that I get is that it's right now it's in a shadow government. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton tried to, to get the uh, information about Roswell but was denied. Uh, uh, Jimmy Carter, same thing. He Before he was uh, took office, he said, I'm going to release, uh, uh, the, the term was unsettling disclosures about UFOs. But once he got into office, uh, you, that was it. You never heard from him again about that. And uh, my own view is that it that it is some sort of shadow group. Well, we won't say it's a shadow government, but a shadow group that uh, controls the uh, the uh, information, the access, and uh, um, uh, we, we we've only learned recently that uh, all of that stuff now. At least most of it is in private hands, and I don't mean uh, Uncle Harry down the street. I mean uh, 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 government contractors like uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, Rand Corporation, Mattel. Those those big uh, those big corporations that have a lot of uh, projects going, a lot of business with the federal government. But uh, uh, it's uh, also it's a. Uh, you know, uh, the Air Force has stated their position on it. It was a high-altitude, constant-level balloon uh, for the wreckage, and the, and the bodies were just these uh, dime-store mannequins that uh, they were testing for high-altitude uh, parachute drops in the 1950s. So uh, if you're in the military and you uh, want to get to the next uh, rank, you don't uh, you don't start saying, hey, uh <laughs> Hey, uh, General, how about that uh, Roswell case? How about you? That's that's a career killer, and uh, in uh, the mainstream media, it's it's still taboo, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's a subject that 
as Don said, that uh, it has been leaking, but uh, a lot of people have taken it to their graves because of their, you know, concern for their employment or their ridicule, something like that. When we get back from the break, we're going to get into the details of Roswell, so everybody's on the same page here. But in the minute we've got left, what, when did you two start working together? Well, that was, uh, I knew Don uh, when he was working with Kevin Randall back around 1991. That's when I, that's when I got on the case. And uh, after the uh, 90, 1997, when the big anniversary, every, most everybody left the field. And uh, Don and I, I knew him from uh, the Center for UFO Studies. Uh, we teamed up at that point because we both wanted to continue the investigation in a proactive way rather than just sitting around waiting for something to drop in our laps. Uh, that was in uh, May of 1998, if I recall, uh, that we teamed up, and that's what, uh, how, how, many, uh, how many years ago was that? I can't remember. 21. <laughs> 21. <laughs> 21 years, wow. Yeah, it seems crazy. Gentlemen, let's talk about Roswell a little bit. I don't know which of the two of you would prefer to answer this, maybe both of you, but uh, what's the official version, or what was the official version of events in 1947? Well, the official version would have been based on that press release that went out on July 8th of 1947, that the Roswell Army Airfield had actually recovered a flying disc and it was very carefully worded. It, does, it didn't give away the location, the, uh, the, the witness uh, who reported the crash, so to speak, but it specifically mentioned Major Marcel, who we had mentioned earlier, who was the whistleblower that first broke the story in 1978 of all people, because he would become the patsy, because five hours later, Washington then steps in, and uh, you know the, one of the main arbiters of the cover-up General Roger Ramey of the 8th Air Force, which then was the uh, commanding uh, squadron over the 509th Bomb Group at Roswell, the first atomic bomb wing in the world at that time. And uh, it was just replaced with a very off-the-shelf, standard, rawin weathered balloon device, you know, comprised of rubber and reflective foil, you know, the kite as far as sticks, string and, and masking tape. And that was the story for the next 30 years until Major Marcel and then all those who followed, you know, stepped forward and said, no, it was the very first announcement, which was the correct one, that it was indeed, you know, a flying disc and it was something not from planet Earth. When you look at well, the... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, and, I, and I was going to say that the... Uh, since that time, uh, you know, uh, uh, Congressman Stephen Schiff in 1993 uh, uh, instituted a uh, an investigation, not not to prove Roswell was uh, a spacecraft or not, but to see that the the uh, media, the uh, the the, uh, the generated uh, telexes and memos and things like that at the time of the crash. Uh, that emanating from Roswell and Fort Worth and Washington to check to see if they were handled and classified correctly, and, and maybe you know see what see what they said. But it turned out that the, they had all been destroyed uh, some years earlier by an uh, unknown authority. Now I don't know if you were in the military or not, but you you can't even 
go to the latrine without authority. And uh, uh, so to have all these records uh, destroyed without authority, it gives one pause to think, well, what's, you know, what's going on here? So at that point, the Air Force uh, uh, instituted some sort of investigation, as they called it, and that's when they come up with this, oh, it wasn't a weather balloon, it was a, 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 a series of weather balloons, a, a high-altitude, a constant-level number of weather balloons carrying a, uh, uh, a uh, acoustic microphone to listen in to the expected detonation of a, an atomic device by the Soviet Union by putting this uh, this uh, acoustic sensor way up in the stratosphere the, or whatever sphere it was and listen in that way and so say well that's what crashed and then uh, two years later in 1997 they said well about those bodies that people record uh, re- reported uh, they they uh, they were really uh, suffering from a, a malady called uh, time compression, which only seems to affect the uh, pro-Roswell witnesses, uh, <laughs> that they were recalling these high-altitude uh, uh, parachute drops using dime store mannequins that, uh, that they were testing in the 1950s. That They came across those out in the desert when they were wandering about, and uh, somehow they uh, mentally, their, their mind, constricted and said, oh, my goodness, that must have been 1947. And uh, that's the Air Force uh, position today. We, uh, Don and I think they floated out because that one didn't fly so well. The uh, Air Force officer who uh, held the press conference was actually laughed off the uh, stage when he uh, came out with that dummies from the sky explanation. Uh, and uh, so we think they floated out the uh, of their uh, uh, that it was a myth uh, that that the the uh, Roswell crash is now in the realm of a myth, and uh, they're not going to comment it uh, about the case anymore. And uh, that's where we're at. The um, event itself. Uh there were many witnesses along this chain of events um, that ultimately either had to uh, be silent or change their story. What lengths did the Air Force or the military in general go through to keep these people quiet for as long as they were able to? Well, with the military, it was simply a matter of just providing them or giving them a direct order. And uh, typically, it was nothing in written form. It's not where you would tip, you, know, you would sign a non-disclosure statement upon leaving the service. And for the next 25 years, you'd have to remain silent about any classified uh, information you had access to or were aware of, that type of thing. Uh, we have descriptions, all these would be taken in the rooms or even in the hangars, and they essentially were threatened, they were warned that they'd be spending the rest of their lives in Leavenworth prison if they ever talked about this again. And uh, you know, there were threats of this physical violence as far as within the uh, the ranks of the military, but what what obviously is, you know, the mis- dis- disconcerting is the fact that they threaten civilians. We have to always keep in mind that the military has absolutely no authority whatsoever as far as uh, law enforcement unless martial law is declared. And the fact that they took it upon themselves to you know, threaten and uh, physically accost the, the sheriff in Roswell at the time. 
and uh, the firemen who were involved and how their families were threatened, and, the, 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 and parents were told they would kill their children if they ever spoke out on this topic again. And it's a, it's a, it's a rather unheralded uh, element in all this, and the, the, uh, the culpability of the, of the government for the fact that they did resort to such extreme measures in silencing the witnesses. And, uh, and is it any wonder that so many of them took it to their grave, that, uh, that they were just, just that intimidated, that fearful for speaking out, uh, even regarding the, the very truth, because, um, and one of the other things that we're discovering more and more is that they also threaten civilians with uh, mental asylums, that they, you'd be, you'll be put in a mental hospital the rest of your life. And so they resorted to all forms of, of, of trickery, but it was thuggish. It was, uh, it was beyond just total intimidation and harassment of, of civilians. And then when you throw children into the mixture, um, you know, the, if these people were still alive, you talk about a class action suit on the part of the witnesses, they'd have a lot of hell to pay. What was Project Mogul? Project Mogul was a uh, project uh, instituted by the uh, uh, military, the, the Army, Army Air Corps, uh, in uh, 1947. Uh, because at the time, the United States was the only uh, nation on the planet with uh, the, the, that had the bomb, the uh, atomic bomb. But they expected, we expected the Russians, who had penetrated the Manhattan Project, to at some point develop their own nuclear bomb. So uh, someone discovered, uh, you know, we, we knew that there was a, up in the stratosphere, ionosphere, one of those spheres, uh, sound carries very well. So the idea at the time, uh, we're talking now in the 1947, was to uh, put up aloft uh, uh, an acoustic sensor, a uh, microphone, so to speak, uh, carry it aloft and keep it up there in that uh, part of the atmosphere that uh, this the sound carries very well. So they developed this device uh, made up of uh, numerous rubber, neoprene rubber balloons, uh, and a number of uh, tinfoil radar targets carrying this this uh, acoustic sensor. And the whole device was, uh, I don't know, 100 feet uh, or more in length, and up it went. And uh, it was uh, done through the, uh, with the cooperation of uh, New York University, and uh, they developed this, and uh, uh, ultimately, the the, uh, the Soviet detonation was not discovered by Project Mogul. It was uh, discovered by a chemical chemical composition in the atmosphere. That's how they were able to tell that in 1949, the uh, Soviets uh, detonated their first atomic bomb. But they tried it first with this acoustic sensor uh, called uh, under a, uh, the the program was top secret, right? Uh, Project Mogul was top secret, but all the parts to it 
uh, the balloons, the uh, radar targets, and the acoustic sensors, they were all common off-the-shelf devices uh, that couldn't fool my grandmother. <laughs> if, uh, you know, when it uh, came to, you know, when the balloons burst and came down, uh, they couldn't fool anybody. And none of our witnesses, we have several hundred witnesses, a number of whom were out there cleaning up the wreckage, and not one of them over the years has described the balloon event to us, not one. They all described something that was truly out of this world. Let's talk about the recovery effort, because one of the important parts of the Roswell story is the part where there were bodies recovered. What do we know about the bodies that were recovered? Well, we... Again, to the credit of the witnesses, the fact that they don't call them spacemen, they don't call them ETs or uh, extraterrestrials of anything of that sort. They they often refer to the little people or the little men. And uh, as one of the personnel at, at the base, when we were doing CBS 48 Hours, and he was asked, well, well, how do you know they weren't from here? Uh, to which he responded, well, they sure weren't from Texas. So <laughs> they, they fully grasped you know, what they were dealing with. But the descriptions are, are totally consistent as to the shape, the size, the little childlike uh, appearance, except for the, the large disproportionate heads, the larger eyes, diminutive nose, and uh, as far as slit for a mouth, and, and diminutive ears, that type of thing. But the ashen gray skin color and the, the one-piece jumpsuit, the one-piece silver gray garment that covered each one uh, again totally consistent whether civilian or military we have two distinct uh, body sites there was a, a secondary body site about two and a half miles from the debris field uh, where the bodies had been uh, lying out there for a number of days exposed to the elements and predators that type of thing but then the final impact site just about 35 to 40 miles north of Roswell were a capsule, a pod, egg-shaped, about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And that's where two additional bodies were recovered, more intact, but a survivor. Ooh. Yes, we have eyewitnesses to a survivor to the crash. Wow. That's new information? Not really, no. Uh, in fact, we had already uh, dealt with that possibility 25 to even 30 years ago because we were hearing second- and third-hand testimony as to a survivor at uh, the main hangar, building P3, where everything transited through, and even at the base hospital, and eventually that led us to first-hand testimony. And, and these are witnesses, one in particular who actually, when he first described the survivor and how he had encountered it, became quite emotional. He actually wept as he described uh, the situation. And then his wife chimed in for the fact that they didn't even sleep in the same bedroom for almost 40 years because of his constant, you know, jolting up in the middle of the night and yelling out because he couldn't get the face out of his mind. Uh, he just repeated, you know, that experience over and over every day of his life. But, Don, you led an organized... I think the only three digs at Roswell in the debris field. Uh, is that right? And what did you find there? Well, actually, we're up to five. Oh, okay, nice. But uh, the, the first one would have been in September of uh, 1989, and we, uh, we, we mapped the site. We laid out a systematic grid 
We use the uh, Seattle Light, a survey meter, uh, to assist us in our accuracy. And we marked areas of uh, potential entrapment. Uh, we did, did some initial uh, shaker box uh, work along an area that uh, the rancher's son, Bill Brazel, described the gouge, a furrow, hundreds, hundreds of feet long, about 10 foot wide, that type of thing. So it gave us a, a, a focal point back at that uh, time. And it was in May of uh, uh, 2002 I was contacted by Larry Landsman, who formerly was with Showtime when we did the, the Roswell movie in 1994. And uh, he asked me, he was working with the Sci-Fi Channel at that time, and asked uh, you guys if you guys could take this to the next level, what would you uh, like to do? And I immediately said, well, we'd like to do another archaeological dig. And he was unaware of the fact that Tom and I had already approached the contract archaeology department at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. And we had been talking to Dick Chapman, who was the head of the department. And we were elated at the fact that they uh, had agreed that with sponsorship, with the funding, that they indeed would, you know, actually conduct such a project. And um, the 2002 dig then became the subject of the two-hour primetime special on the Sci-Fi Channel, which up to that point was their highest-rated uh, TV production wow. in their 10-year history. Wow. So very proud of that. Yeah. Uh, we confirmed the gouge with the, uh, the backhole uh, operation, where exactly where Brazel and then subsequently other witnesses described its location. And there it was, right below the surface, you know, a symmetrical V, suggesting something had clearly impacted and skipped across the ground at that point. In uh, 2006, we did the next dig with NBC, uh, which was also through Larry Landsman after NBC had purchased uh, a sci-fi and uh, USA Network. And uh, that was more of a reality show at that time, so we were very dissatisfied. It was a waste of the university and our time, as we felt. And then in 2013, we had the Mutual UFO Network, and we had uh, two archaeologists from the Bureau of Land Management, as well as a geologist by the name of Frank Kimler, who uh, assisted us. And then uh, we we worked mostly the uh, the runoff, the uh, the uh, erosion uh, course of the site, and uh, found a few things that um, shouldn't have been there, but nonetheless, there was nothing that unusual. And then in 2015, we, we located a final depository site about a mile down from the uh, debris field where all the runoff, all the erosion finally, uh, you know, comes to rest. And it was about 10 inches of sediment, and we went through all of that over the course of two days, uh, found not so much as a nail or a piece of wire, so now we retrace. So uh, at, at another point when we have sufficient funding and sponsorship, We'll make it a sixth try. Uh, I do. I would like to add, though, it's, it's interesting that there have been attempts at um, salting, sabotaging the site. Uh, one, on one occasion, a few years ago, someone sprayed nails all over the site as though to uh, contaminate it. Really? And we've done ye omen, uh, you know, work in keeping it private, keeping it secret. In fact, as, as Tom knows, we had a dedication. We have a monument that overlooks the site. So people have some place to go to, take pictures, and it's a, it's, a, it's a fitting tribute as far as to the location. But it's still a half a mile away. Mm -hmm. 
uh, because we still consider the actual site an active archaeological site. And as long as we're you know, continuing our work there, we're going to do all we can to keep it as, as pristine and untainted as we can. Tom, um, they must have done a really, really good job of cleanup back uh, in 1947 in the days after the crash. Uh, they, they didn't leave a stone unturned, did they? Uh, you're reading my mind, uh, J.V. Uh, uh, the site that we did the uh, archaeological dig was the site that they cleaned up with a fine-tooth comb uh, for many days. And uh, they ran out the teams of 60 or more at a time, 100 or more, they got down on their hands and knees and uh, told to pick up anything that wasn't uh, natural. And uh, so they, the GIs, they, they picked up everything. Now, it's our belief, see, there's uh, three sites that we've identified uh, in the Roswell case. The so-called uh, debris field site, which is what we've been talking about, that's where the, the ship exploded uh, we, during a thunder and lightning storm, uh, either from an internal malfunction or from most likely a lightning strike, it exploded and rained down debris in, in small pieces, and that's the site we did the uh, the dig at. There's several of the digs. Uh, it continued on. Uh, the inner cabin uh, withstood the the blast and, and fl- uh, traveled another thirty thirty five miles uh, and came to rest. Uh, uh, just north of Ro- the town of Roswell. But it's our belief that uh, GIs being GIs, uh, they didn't get it all. Uh, there, we believe there's still stuff out there, especially along that trajectory of about 30 to 35 miles from the debris field site over the uh, body site where the, the Two of them were thrown out and met their uh, met their ultimate fate, and then the so-called impact site where the inner cabin came to rest. Along that thirty to thirty-five mile trajectory, we believe it was dropping uh, pieces of wreckage the entire way. But the thing is, we don't have the wherewithal to to walk with a a, a large number of people that trajectory along the desert floor to find things that. Uh, perhaps are now buried over uh, the year, 72 years. So uh, we've concentrated on this one site, but uh, it's the site, that at least I, I believe, that the military really cleaned up. Uh, they vacuumed the site. And uh, I'll be surprised if, uh, uh, luckily so, uh, we find uh, something uh, of, a, you know, a viable piece of wreckage which is what we're looking for at that site. I believe that there, there are pieces out there along that trajectory that no one's really looked at because, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's way out in the desert, and uh, uh, most people out there would know that, that it's along the trajectory. But uh, that's where I believe uh, a piece will turn up someday there by somebody just uh, uh, by... Uh, you know, fortuitous luck. I want to get both of your opinions on uh, what seems to be making some headlines, at least some social media stir. Is this, uh, I don't even know what we call it. I'll call it an effort, but I think it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek effort 
uh, to get uh, people to storm Area 51. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, there's like two, 2 million people that have signed up on this Facebook page. Obviously, not 2 million people are going to show up, but, you know, some may. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, there's nothing to see out there. There certainly isn't any lodging or any place to really accommodate anyone. So uh, be forewarned if you're just going to even you know, trek out there just to be a part of the happening, so to speak. But as I even posted on my Facebook page, I mean, uh, does anybody remember Tiananmen Square? Right. Uh, the idea that the military is just going to open the front gate and say, come on in, let's have a picnic <laughs> about this. Uh, I, you know, if I were to recommend that people, if they really wanted to at least feel that they were getting some truth regarding the UFO phenomena, they should go to the International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell. And uh, at least it's a lot safer. Many, you know, wonderful motels in Roswell and restaurants (laughs) and things. And not to plug the place, but, uh, you know, this is just uh, foolhardy. I mean, the very thought that let's storm, uh, why don't we storm the White House where we're at it and see how, <laughs> who gets in the furthest, you know. Um, no, just totally irresponsible. I know the, the, the gamer, the, the, the party that originally concocted the notion is now backing off and yeah. suggesting that it was more of a publicity ploy on his part. But, uh, but that's the thing when it comes to people that... Uh, uh, you know, even I don't mean to quote him, but uh, I guess it comes down to, you know, the easiest people, and, and Hitler was the one who used to say it, it's the easiest people to convince of anything are the people who don't believe anything. Right. And so uh, it's just the wrong place to look for answers, and as far as Tom and I are concerned, there really is nothing, if, if not very little, related to the UFO phenomenon, even at 51. Tom, let's uh, let's talk about Wright Patterson. Make the connection for us between Roswell and Wright Patterson. Yes, uh, during World War II, uh, Wright Field. Uh, by that, in, during World War II, it was Wright Field and Patterson Field. They hadn't joined yet to become Wright Patterson, which uh, actually occurred right after the Roswell incident. But uh, during World War II, uh, the uh, German uh, uh, Messerschmitts and the Japanese uh, Mitsubishis uh, were brought to right field for back engineering to take them apart, uh, nut by bolt, to see what made them tick so we could uh, perhaps uh, uh, develop things to defeat them in battle. uh, So the back engineering was already taking place at right field in Dayton, Ohio. So, and also that's where the intelligence uh, 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 function for the Air, Air Corps, Army Air Corps, took place was at, at the right field in Dayton, Ohio. They had this thing called, uh, it's, it's gone through several iterations, but uh, we, we usually refer to it as FTD, the Foreign Technology Division. So when something like uh, a flying saucer crashed at Roswell in 1947, uh, the FTD, the Foreign Technology Division of uh, uh, Wright Field, was already set up to receive this foreign technology. So that's why it went to 
right fielder and then later identified as right Patterson because uh, not only because that was the best place to take it, they also had an advanced uh, aeromedical facility there for the biological remains. But also, uh, the witnesses that we interviewed over the years, they all said that the wreckage and the bodies, it was their understanding that some of them said uh, it was taken back east, uh, but most of them said it was uh, taken to Wright or, or Wright-Patterson. So we have it from the witnesses, but we also have it because uh, 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 functionally that, that's the place where it would have gone. And uh, we also have witnesses at Wright, Wright-Patterson that uh, were there uh, when it came in. So uh, there, there's, there's no doubt about it. Have any of your witnesses uh, indicated that there's more uh, alien material there than just what uh, had been found at uh, Red Roswell? Have they have, do they have other craft, other artifacts? I don't know if we call them artifacts, but other alien artifacts there? Uh, they, they did. Uh, up, uh, I mean, that's where, that's where the alien stuff went. You know, the FTD, the Foreign Technology Division. Right. But our understanding, uh, JB, is that um, some point in the early 1980s, because the, the town of Dayton was building up under, uh, I mean, around uh, Wright Patterson, and that's where they, all the new uh, aircraft were being developed. And, uh, you know, when you're developing new aircraft, uh, lots of times, or sometimes, uh, uh, not lots of times, but sometimes they crash, and the, the you know it was now becoming uh, you know a cosmopolitan area. So uh, and also the uh, CIA was wanted to develop these uh, high altitude spy planes. So the uh, the the uh, Area Fifty One in Nevada was constructed in 1955 to develop these high altitude super secret spy planes. And our understanding from people on the ground is that the alien artifacts, let's call them, were moved to Area 51 in Nevada in the beginning in the early 1980s. And then uh, in the 1990s, when you had a lawsuit filed by uh, victims of uh, uh, because they were uh, burning uh, hazardous materials there as well, and they got sick, and some died, and lawsuits developed, and uh, it was becoming known that uh, that maybe there was some alien stuff there when this uh, fellow Robert Lazar started talking in uh, 1989. So it was becoming known that maybe that's where that stuff was. So uh, since uh, since then, it's been moved elsewhere. Uh, perhaps uh, to uh, a place in Utah uh, known as Dugway, the, Doug, the old Dugway Proving Grounds, which was a lot like the uh, Nevada test site where the uh, Area 51 was constructed. So some of it went to to uh, Dugway, but the, the bulk of it, is, which is our understanding, is that it's now in uh, in private uh, private hands. But that, that's where the connection came, because uh, it was the place, really, that, uh, you know, that it was already set up for, for something like, uh, something really foreign, like a, a crash flying saucer. This is a short segment, guys, but I want to ask about what uh, descriptions some of your witnesses have been able to pr- provide regarding maybe parts of the craft, maybe some of the tech that was there that may or may not have been reverse engineered. Um, how much detail were you able to get? 
Well, we'll, use, we'll cite the example of uh, the late uh, General Arthur Exxon, who was actually there in 1947 as lieutenant colonel at uh, Foreign Technology Division, uh, T2, back at that time. And he didn't see the material personally, but because he was assigned to that very uh, building, he was aware of the wreckage coming in from Roswell and was fully aware of all the, uh, the tests, all the efforts in trying to uh, test the, the, the tensile strength, the, the, the pressure, uh, the components, at, even at the molecular level, what they were dealing with. And, and, and Exxon would tell us that uh, there was a unanimous consensus afterwards that the materials were from space, that they were not manufactured on planet Earth. And uh, Exxon would be would even go on years later to be the base commander at at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Now, now let's just think of this for a moment. Here he is; he's the highest ranking officer on the base in 1964, and he would describe to us that there were there were entire areas of the base that were off limits to him, and he was yeah. in charge. Yeah. And so that would clearly demonstrate these underground, these subterranean levels. And we've heard as many as ten levels. And uh, the, the underground vaults and even the underground nuclear reactor. I mean, the base is nuclear-powered. And to speak to the son of the engineer who designed the, uh, one of the vaults that just happens to be under the nuclear reactor on the base. Well, what a strange place for a, a vault, you know, hiding something. Uh, and But then you, you, you bring all of this into the, the picture, and you realize that they were doing all they could back at, at not only in 1947, but thereafter for all the reported crashes and all the wreckage and all the bodies that supposedly final destination was, uh, was Wright-Patterson. And then the irony that the Air Force in their... There, there are three official UFO investigations, Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book, the most famous of the three. They were all headquartered at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Right. So it was a one-stop one, one shopping, so to speak. Everything was housed at Wright-Pat. And little did, like Dr. Jalen Heineck, my former scientific director, who was consulting the Project Blue Book, little did they know that the evidence was right beneath their noses. It was right there. Well, this is our last segment, but before we uh, start chatting again, where can people get the book? Uh, the book is uh, carried, of course, uh, with uh, Amazon and uh, barnesandnoble.com. Um, you can, uh, the, the, uh, Barnes & Noble, I, I guess they still have bookstores. It, it, it would be in there. <laughs> they're, uh, they're our vendor. And uh, th- those are the ones that come to mind. Uh, um, Finer bookstores throughout the country. So. Perfect. Perfect. Let's jump to uh, our listener line here. Let's grab a question from our good friend Barry in South Carolina. Hey, Barry, welcome to the program. Hello, JV. What a pleasure it is to speak to you once again. And you, sir. And I, yeah. Um, Hall of Fame, JV, in, in Cooperstown. <laughs> uh, didn't they take in the Yankees, Ramirez? Was that his name? No, it's uh, Yankees' uh, Mariano Rivera, the best closing pitcher in baseball history, is what some of us like to say. Unbelievable. What a guy. He deserved to be in three or four Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. He is, 
He is absolutely one of the greatest of all times, and the Yankees, of course, had him. Anyway, don't I get Tom started on the Phillies because uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, <laughs> uh, it's a sore subject. Yes. <laughs> Listen, I, uh, um, I'm curious, and what you guys know about Area 52? I was talking to George Norrie on Coast to Coast the mm-hmm. night. And uh, uh, George Knapp, actually, he lives in Vegas. Anyway, um, Area 51, of course, gets all the publicity, but I was just curious if you guys knew anything about Area 52. And, J.V., thanks for letting me on. Thank you, Barry. Always a great question. Always great talking to you. Well, well, we do mention that uh, uh, he's talking about Dugway, I yes, believe. Yes, Dugway in Utah, yeah. Yes, we do. We do have something in our book, uh, UFO Secrets at uh, Wright Patterson, about Doug Way. And uh, I think what happened was uh, uh, when they had that lawsuit in the mid 1990s, uh, when Clinton was president, uh, about the hazmat uh, uh, deal where people were getting sick. Uh, the story is that a lot of stuff went to. Dugway uh, as Area 52, and others said, oh, no, and, and, and people started saying, well, Area 51 is closed down, uh, but none of that took place, uh, and what we do know, uh, Don can, uh, you know, uh, uh, fill in probably a little more than I, but the, the one of the commanders at, at Wright-Patterson of the Foreign Technology Division, a fellow named George Weinbrenner, I believe he was a general, no, he was, uh, he, he was just a full bird, yeah. Was he a full bird? I, yeah. Uh, uh, in charge of the, you know, the foreign technology the technology division. And on his deathbed, uh, he was quoted as saying that we have five of them, five of the aliens in Utah. That would be Dugway. And uh, so... Uh, we believe that the the Roswell. We know there were five of them, and the one uh, survivor, of course, uh, expired at some point. So we have five cadavers. Then uh, uh, Colonel Weinbrenner says they're in Dugway. Now, if there's anything else there, I don't know. I I I, I don't know. And then we have uh, we have a first hand another full bird colonel by the name of Robert Mountdragon, who described. Uh, being shown one of the bodies in the late 50s at Dugway. And then when I posed the question, and he just passed away within the last month, Colonel Robert Friend, who was the second-last director of Project Blue Book. And I asked him, if you had biological remains, if you had bodies from a crashed UFO, where would they be today? And he immediately responded, oh, well, of course, Dugway, the biological medical research facility. And uh, so that was just additional confirmation that we indeed may be on the right track. Area 52, absolutely correct. All right. Um, let's, we're going to run out of time before we run out of questions here. Who was Leonard Stringfield? Leonard Stringfield was a Cincinnati, Ohio businessman who had an interest in UFOs. He wrote a book called... Uh, situation read the ufo siege something like that and he would give talks and he developed a lot of uh, contacts uh, in dayton and at wright patterson uh, 
who started feeding him stories of crashed UFOs. Now, up until Leonard Stringfield, uh, the subject of crashed UFOs was a taboo subject. The uh, Donald Kehoe, the great uh, uh, you know promoter for UFOs are real in the 19, late 1940s and during the 1950s, he wouldn't go near crashed uh, UFO stories because he thought they were they were a bridge too far for him. He thought that that uh, such stories would uh, uh, taint the whole. A UFO uh, phenomenon that he was trying to get the credibility for. So he stayed away from them. But uh, Leonard Stringfield started accumulating these stories from uh, people at uh, who were at Wright-Patterson and who lived in uh, Dayton who heard these stories. And uh, he started accumulating these stories about crashed UFOs. He finally published a monograph in 1978 called... Uh, Oh my goodness! Uh, uh, recoveries of uh, some uh, recoveries of the third kind. I, I could have that wrong, but it was about crashed UFOs. So he started the whole the whole business of that that possibly you know crashed UFOs have taken place, and uh, so we call him the father of crashed UFOs. And uh, he passed away. Uh, I forget when. Nineteen ninety five. Part of the difficulty here is that we have lost so many, if not nearly all, of the witnesses to many of these events, um, and uh, you know it becomes more and more difficult to get any of this information. Exactly, as we've often, uh, you know, just lamented the fact that uh, we're racing with the Undertaker, and the Undertaker is about to win, um, and now we're losing also uh, the, the families, the children of, of Roswell. And um, we realize that now we have to, uh, you know, conduct more and more of the physical, the archaeological work, more and more of the archival, the documents. And one of the things we're also looking forward to is, and we talked about Stan Friedman at the beginning of the program, that now having the opportunity to go through all of his files. And I'm sure there are many leads, many names of, 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 of possible eyewitnesses that he did not follow up on. I'm sure it'll be too late, but it doesn't mean we can't track down the families. Right. And acquire. What's great about the second-hand testimony, when it corroborates the first-hand, it then solidifies the first-hand even more. And so, um, you know, we've worked with lawyers for too many years who continue to encourage us that as long as there are eyewitnesses, even second and third hand, that we still, it builds the case. And, and the point being overall is that we're not finding a single witness to anything conventional, anything prosaic. When um, we talk about the government working so hard to keep this a secret for so many years, is it your opinion that the, that the government is doing that because they don't want our military enemies to understand or know what has happened, or is it because they are, need to keep it uh, secret from us, from the public? Which of the two, or is it both? It's both. Uh, back in '47, uh, they had uh, you know fairly credible reasons to keep it uh, secret because the Cold War was just starting up in 1947, and uh, the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, the Soviets had, uh, 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 you know, it penetrated the uh, uh, 
development of the atomic bomb, the Manhattan Project, and uh, we didn't want them to, to perhaps uh, uh, get the technological advantage if they penetrated the uh, recovery of this uh, crash saucer, because uh, we didn't know what we had, you know, certainly a ship from another planet somewhere in the universe, it would have would have a technology that we might want to exploit, and we didn't want the Russians to uh, to actually uh, get wind of this, uh, what it really was, and perhaps exploit some of the stuff they were good at it themselves. And uh, so that was one reason. The other main reason was in 1938, the famous uh, War of the Worlds radio broadcast yeah. uh, featuring Orson Welles, uh, put the uh, East Coast, parts of the East Coast of the United States, in a panic. They uh, they presented the show. It was based on H.G. Wells' War of the World story, but they they portrayed it as a news. Uh, we interrupt this broadcast right. type thing, and the East Coast went into a panic. So uh, the higher-ups in the Air Corps at the time, and most notably uh, General Hoyt S. Vandenberg, who was controlling the whole... Uh, situation from Washington, he did not want panic in the streets. That's what he was most afraid of. So he put the kibosh on the uh, Roswell story that had broken the newspaper. He killed it in the media, and uh, for the next 30 years, uh, they killed it. So back then, they had, uh, you know, fairly uh, credible reasons for... Uh, also, they wanted to find out what they had, and... and uh, uh, you know, you don't you don't announce to the world, folks. We don't know what this is. <laughs> so uh, until they found out more about it, uh, they had good reason, perhaps, to kill the story. So why is it still uh, uh, covered up? Uh, well, what happens is uh, you get something like this, and it gets a momentum of its own. Yeah. People come and go, but the but the momentum is still there. It's been always covered up, so let's keep it covered up. And also, there's a risk. There's a risk to uh, divulging. If they divulge tomorrow, uh, folks, we've uh, uh, Roswell was real. UFOs are real. We've been we've been uh, lying to you for seventy two years. Well, how's that going to go over? Right. You know what else are you lying to uh, about to yeah. us? So uh, they uh, they keep it covered up because they they we also believe that they still don't know what it. What they they still haven't figured it out. It becomes they still haven't figured it out. Yeah, and it so. becomes self perpetuating. Let's jump. Uh, let's grab another phone call here. This is Fred from Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Fred, welcome back to the program. Always great to have you on. Yeah. Hey, JV. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. The other lie is that your children's social security is going to work. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, what I wanted to ask was, I saw a guy on TV or some two, five years ago, whatever, that was getting very old. He said he worked, I think, at Wright-Patterson, and that he wanted people to know his inventions weren't really his, that he would go in a room with pencil and paper, and and they would have an alien come in or two, and without even any, you know, just telepathy, he would start writing this stuff down, he said, and... Uh, so there must have been, if that's true, more than one alien that lived and continued to live from some that they picked up somewhere else. So I was going to see if y'all knew anything on that or who this was. Uh, that one, that one escaped us, and we've heard just about every such uh, story regarding, you know, the recovery of uh, survivors from a UFO crash, or certainly the 
the uh, attempted reverse engineering of the technology. But we, we know, though, as far as with, uh, in the event of a, a survivor, I mean, we've heard, for example, that there were linguists that were brought in in an attempt to communicate. We know that as far as with the autopsies, that they brought in uh, doctors from all different uh, specialties. We, we, we long cite the, the example of Dr. Lejeune Foster, who was president of the American Chiropractic Association back in 1947. And uh, her very housekeeper talked about how she was flown in the right path and returned a week later, scared to death because she was threatened that if she ever said a word about what she had experienced. And her assignment was to do no- uh, nothing more than examine the spinal cords, uh, you know, that type of thing. So there's nothing, there was nothing in the Army field manual dealing with this phenomenon back in 1947, that they were making this up as they went along. Well, I think this was even later, you know, later than then, a lot later. So this wasn't directly related? Even at that point, even at that point, because, and and Tom is absolutely correct, we still maintain that it's a cover-up of ignorance, that they still have no answers. They still don't know from where, from why, or from who. And they've tried and attempted every device possible in getting a breakthrough, trying to go to the next level. And I think it's also a, a, a point of arrogance on our part that we would think that we could bridge the technology, that if you're dealing with something that is 100, 200, 500, 1,000 years ahead of us, that we could just automatically you know, bridge that gap, so to speak. Fred, thank you for that great question and that great point. We're just out of time, guys. Um, the book is called UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. And uh, you mentioned where people can get it. Mention it again and also let people know where they can follow your work. Well, you could get, get the, uh, the book uh, on Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, or uh, your friendly bookstore, uh, most notably Barnes & Noble. And uh, I don't know, Don, can we get it on our website? Have, do we have a... Uh, no, we shifted our... that over to the museum, the International UFO Museum and Research Center, their, uh, their gift shop, their, uh, re, their uh, online store. Yes, and uh, our uh, website is www.roswellinvestigator.com, and uh, the International UFO Museum in Roswell uh, has it. And uh, I think that's all. I think that's pretty much it. Guys, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us tonight, and uh, best of luck with the book. Thank you, JV. Great uh, that you gave us this opportunity to discuss what we believe is the biggest story of the millennium. Thank you, JV. The uh, Roswell incident never leaves the headlines of the UFO community ever. It's considered to be the holy grail of experiences when it comes to the uh, to UFO investigation and reports, and uh, the fact that there's still uh, pretty good evidence of a cover up of some kind, one form or another, makes it a very, very interesting story. Sure. I mean, it was. The closest we ever came to an actual official statement uh, by anybody in any position of authority. Yeah, hand me that book over there, the one we got yesterday. No, the one we got yesterday, because uh, I don't know if you remember, folks, a couple, uh, um, well, last week we had uh, uh, Captain T.C. Randall on. We were talking about his book, Forbidden Healing, which we didn't have a copy of at the time, mm-hmm. but we got it. I mean, this thing had to be like delivered by special delivery because <laughs> it's, 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 it's a massive book.
It is, and it's well done, and yeah. it's full of information and charts. Great book. And he also said that um, he was really impressed by our audience's response, and uh, a lot of people were interested in this. So uh, I'm anxious to read this myself. It looks pretty pretty cool, so I can't throw it. It's going to hurt something. Um, anyway, that's going to do it for tonight. We'll be back on with you tomorrow night. Thanks for being here, uh, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.